They were rebels, outcasts of the Paris art scene. And today, you can view the works of Impressionist painters that we so enjoy at the places where Rodin, Renoir, and Monet created their masterpieces. Every time I'm, I'm visiting Giverny, I feel like if I'm walking through one of his paintings. Take a closer look at the Louvre, and you can find stories that the great art museum can reveal about Paris over the centuries. The Louvre is one of the great architectural and cultural masterpieces in Paris, in itself, not just for what it contains. And don't get upset if your plans for a perfect week in Paris get disrupted by street demonstrations and transit delays. It's all part of your authentic experience. I mean, all of my life, we've been going through protests. So I would say a best week in Paris is a week with a protest or a week with a strike. Otherwise, it's not Paris. It's not France. Find out what a visit to Paris can do for you in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. What should you do to give yourself a perfect week in Paris? A pair of French tour guides have recommendations in just a bit on today's all-Paris edition of Travel with Rick Steves. And architecture critic James Gardner returns with pointers for your first time at the massive Louvre Art Museum. Even if you don't go in, the building itself can tell you stories about the history of France. Let's start the hour with expert advice for enjoying the Impressionist art that we treasure today. It all started in Paris. At first, it was too radical for most back in the late 19th century. But a group of artists in Paris kept experimenting with capturing the vagaries of light and shadow on their canvases and making the outdoors their studio. Today, we call the effects of their short brushstrokes and combining colors Impressionism. And what better place to enjoy their masterpieces than where these artists live? Guiding us right now on Travel with Rick Steves to the top places for viewing Impressionist art up close in and around Paris is Elizabeth Van Hest. Elizabeth visited Paris from her home in the Netherlands more than 40 years ago. She liked it so much, she's made Paris her home ever since. Elizabeth, bonjour. Thank you. First of all, Elizabeth, how do you define Impressionism? If you think of Impressionism, it is amazing because everybody knows the world. It was, in fact, uh, never introduced by the painters themselves or art specialists. No, it was, in fact, a negative criticism. Because, you know, when the painters who started to paint in the open air and use a different kind of techniques, not a composition anymore, not mixing your colors on your palette, mm -hmm. no, they started to paint directly on the canvas and you, as a spectator, you are going to mix the colors. So they would dab two colors together next to each other on the canvas, and it would mix between the canvas and your eyes, and they exactly. wouldn't mix it on their palette. Yes. And that gives it a more vibrancy. Exactly. And these painters, you know, they could only become well-known through the official exhibitions. There were no art galleries in those days. So since so many painters have been refused on those official exhibitions in the Salon, in the Louvre, or in yeah. the Luxembourg Palace, well, they decided to organize their exhibition themselves. And they did that in a place owned by a photographer called Nada. It was in the year 1874. And, of course, all these young painters, they had to uh, display their artwork. And Monet, he took one of his paintings that he had painted in the harbor of Le Havre where he grew up. And he gave it quickly a title saying Impression Soleil Levant, Impression Sunrise. Hmm. And there an art critic came inside and said, ha, 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 look at that. That is called Impressionism. And this word became well known, although the painters themselves called the 
themselves independent? Because they were stepping away from the conservative salon, the, 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 the mainstream, and they were sort of rebels. And then the yes. critics said, it's just a scant impression, just a, as a, an insult. But yes. they, they embraced it, and then yes. it was impressionism. Exactly. And it's a beautiful thing, because we can paint reality beautifully by this point, and now we're going beyond that, getting impressions of the sun and the shadows and the colors exactly. dappled in the shade. Yes. And you find that when you're in Paris. Now, if you're going to go to Paris, Elizabeth, and you want to see the best of the Impressionists, what would your top four or five sites be? Of course, you go first to the Orsay Museum. Mm-hmm. That is the largest collection. This is, well, paradise for all those who like Impressionism. So that's the Orsay Gallery, the former big train station right along the Seine River, which is now turned into the great museum collecting all the collections of post-Louvre art. The Louvre goes until about 1850 or something, and then after that we see it now together in the Orsay. Exactly. And you see work until the beginning of the 20th century, so Mm -hmm. also post-Impressionism. Then you shouldn't miss, of course, the Orangerie. And now the water lilies by Monet, who were donated by the great artists to France and the French after the First World War as a gift of peace. Well, if you go there inside, you find peace in yourself. Now, this is the Orangerie. It was a a place where they kept the orange trees originally for the palace associated with the Louvre. And then the new purpose is to contain art. And I understand Monet actually designed the the way his water lilies would be situated there. Yes, but he never saw it himself. He wanted it to be shown to the public Ah. after his death because he was aware of the fact that the times had changed. And, you know, after the First World War, art will change very much. Now, if you want to see more of Monet's great paintings in Paris, what's another gallery you would Uh, go to? I would say uh, go to Marmottan. Don't miss Marmottan Museum. That is where the son of Monet donated all the artwork that was still in Giverny, Uh as you see. Um, He had one son who inherited. Um, When the son died, Michel, he donated it to the Marmottan Museum. And it's a beautiful uh, mansion also on the edge of Paris, the Marmottan Museum, M-A-R-M-A-T-T-A-N. We often think of Impressionism as paint on canvas, but sculpture, carving marble, can also be Impressionist. If we want to get a dose of that, what should we do? Well, then you should go and not miss uh, the Rodin Museum. It uh, is the place where Rodin had his last studio, the last years of his life, and suddenly the idea came up to donate his artwork to the state so that they could transform that In mansion. his studio. And yes. you can see right where Rodin, the great sculptor, and he happened to be working at the same time as Monet and, and these yes, great Impressionist they were painters. nearly born on the same day, only two days. Uh, Is that right? Yes. Now, yes. you know, we, uh, we're all tied into a certain medium when we're thinking about art, but... But music is part of this also. Yes. Is it any coincidence that, to me, some music feels impressionistic? Well, you should listen to Claude Debussy, for instance. Was he living, uh, working in the same decade? Yes, So there was. you go. Yeah. A little later, but, but yes. But still impressionist in style. Yes. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're delving into some slice of culture from far away as we do each week here on this radio show. And today we're joined by Elizabeth Van Hest talking about impressionism in and around Paris. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and you can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Kristen's on the phone in Delray Beach, Florida. Kristen, thanks for your call. Thanks. It's great to be able to talk to you. Um, I just want to say how much I enjoyed seeing the Marmottan Museum last May, and I am a great fan of Monet. And to be able to see the painting that he did, which inspired the term Impressionism, was very exciting. 
it is fun to see the what I think fairly can be called the first impressionist painting, mm-hmm. and to mm-hmm. think of the fun that these guys were just you know perturbing all of the uh, mainstream right. artists, and then the winners were the rebels who broke away from the salon and started their own movement. And, of course, it was born in Paris, and we can see the great sites there. And, Kristen, wasn't it fun getting out to the Montmartre Museum? It really was, and um, we're going back again. <laughs> we oh, really good. felt we didn't see it all. I enjoyed and, an impressionist uh, experience just going through the park outside oh, yeah. of the Montmartre to see the kids on the carousel there and just think this Absolutely. is the same sort of delightful scene that would have inspired an impressionist painter back in the 1880s. Kristen, thanks for your call. Yeah, thanks. Nice to talk to you. Bye. You too. Once Elizabeth Van Hest saw Paris, she fell in love with the city and has made it her home ever since. Elizabeth is a licensed national guide to the amazing art scene in Paris and across France. We have more with this week's show notes at ricksteves.com radio. Joanne's calling in from Tustin, California. Hi, it's great to be on. I'm a big Monet fan. And when I was in Paris, I wanted to go visit Monet's garden in Giverny. And it was a bit of far away, having to take train and the bus and walking there, standing in line. But when I stepped into that garden, it was just amazing. I saw just a parts of his paintings everywhere in his garden. It is an amazing experience, and let's make sure our listeners know what you're talking about here, uh, Joanne. It's Giverny, and that is G-I-V-E-R-N-Y. I believe it's about 50 miles west of Paris, and you get there by train. You go to a, a town called Vernon, V-E-R-N-O-N, and then that's just a few miles from uh, Giverny, and you make your way from there. But uh, this is the beautiful sort of farmhouse that Monet spent his last 40 years, and he created his pastoral paradise with a pond and floating lilies and weeping willow trees and the Japanese bridge. And when you walk through there, you can just imagine this artistic genius being in, in his glory there. Elizabeth, tell us about Giverny a little bit. Every time I'm, I'm visiting Giverny, I feel like if I'm walking through one of his paintings. And it's always a pleasure. Don't say if you pick a, a day when it is raining that it's not interesting. It is. And this is a beautiful thing about Impressionism. Yes. You could paint a different painting standing on the same spot, looking at the same garden at different times of day and in different weather. And from an Impressionist's point of view, they're completely different because the physical substance is just the rack upon which the colors and the light is is hanging. Yeah, and that's why Monet picked out so many series, mm-hmm. series of haystacks, series of poplars, series of the Cathedral of Rouen, but then the series, of course, of his water lilies. Mm. About 30 years he will dedicate his life to water lilies paintings, and the last, let's say, 10 or 15 years, he will work on these huge canvases that... This was his, this was his opus magnum, really, this, yes. uh, this water lilies. Joanne, thanks for your call, and thanks for reminding us about Giverny. Thank you, Joanne. Elizabeth, when we're talking about Impressionism and how Paris inspired these great artists and they were so revolutionary, today, as travelers in the 21st century, in this great city of Paris, how would you walk around and just get an Impressionistic joy out of what you see actually today in real life? Well, first of all, you can go to the Tuileries Gardens, painted so often by Sisley, Pizarro, and Monet, that I consider as the real Impressionist. Uh, you sit along the River Seine, and you see the, uh, the sun reflected in the water, and you are with Monet, who said, when I look at that, I close my eyes, and what remains in my mind 
I reflect it on my canvas and it will be an artwork, it will be a painting. Of course, you go to Montmartre, there's less, very little left from the original Montmartre, how the painters have, have known it. But there is still a wine garden. There are two windmills, wooden windmills, that remind you of the time of the Impressionists. Mm-hmm. And then I think I would take you to the Bois de Boulogne, because that that is the whole period of Napoleon III, you know. Uh, you can still rent a, a little boat, a little barge, and you row exactly like in the paintings of the Impressionists. And that's the Grand Park on just on the edge of Paris, where yes. you can really enjoy that sort it's of love of life that the Impressionists so beautifully captured yes. on canvas. Of course, you, you should also go behind the Saint-Lazare railway station. People like, uh, painters like Caillebotte, mm-hmm. they were very impressed by the new constructions. Don't forget that Impressionism is also the Paris of Napoleon III. Creation. So this is part of the new industrial age, yes. and they were capturing the wonder exactly. of that age as well. And you know, Monet went to Saint-Lazare railway mm. station. He even said to the chief in the, in the train station, stop that train, I have to paint it. Elizabeth Van Hest, you're inspiring us all to go back to Paris with a little bit different eyes so we can appreciate the impressionist overlay of that beautiful city. Thank you very much for sharing. It was a pleasure. Au revoir. Thank you. What should first-timers visiting the Louvre do to tackle Paris's massive art museum? In just a bit, we'll hear how even the building itself can tell you a lot about France. But first, tour guides from Paris offer tips for designing a perfect week in the French capital. Bonjour, it's Travel with Rick Steves. Ernest Hemingway once called Paris a movable feast, a city that stays with you. As romantic as the city of lights can be, it's not just for lovers. History buffs, lovers of great art and architecture, and gourmands of all stripes fall in love with the city as well. Paris-based guides Véronique Savoy and Arnaud Savignon join us now in our studio to help you plan the perfect week in Paris. Arnaud, Véronique, thanks for joining us. Thank Thank you you very much. Thank you. Now, Véronique, you used to live right here in Seattle, and now you live in Paris. Uh, Are you French? Are you American? What's your story? I am both. I was born in France, but I'm also an American citizen. Uh I lived here for 23 years, and Uh I relocated back to France. So I'm a Parisian once again. And you've got a foot in both uh, cultures, so you're a good teacher. You can understand the American confusion with things that are complicatedly Mm -hmm. French. Mm -hmm. What's one little uh, extra important angle that you'd give a visitor coming to Paris? An important angle? I would try and explain the difference between the Paris that people know, you know, and uh, the big stereotypes about Paris, the Grand grand Paris, uh, close to the Seine River, the touristy sites. I would also, I, I would show them, I think, neighborhoods that are a little bit off the beaten path where people live, which is not all sitting outside a cafe and there's sipping a, a glass a, of wine. There's a reality. The tourists have these... Uh, clichetic images almost of strolling mm-hmm. the Champs-Élysées or yeah. going up the Eiffel Tower or cruising the Seine. Yeah, and there's that. But of course, but there's people in workaday neighborhoods and you can take the metro out and visit a neighborhood. no, I, I hear that Paris is a collection of neighborhoods, really. Yes. Talk a little bit about that. Well, it's like uh, you can have like a lot of little villages in Paris. Um, mm-hmm. That's what really the joy of uh, living in Paris would be. Uh, you could be uh, in the 18th arrondissement and then have the uh, feeling of being in Montmartre or you could be um, by the Republic Square, walking along the canal, uh, and you feel everywhere, it's like a little village. You have all the shops nearby, all the cafes nearby. You have like 
very uh, close life, in fact. You don't move very much from your neighborhood. So that probably is your world, your arrondissement or your neighborhood. Yeah, yeah, it's and then, very of course, important. if you want to go to the museum or to some concert yeah. or a nice restaurant, you can hop in the metro and in 15 very minutes easy. you can be When there. there is a metro, of course. <laughs> we got to talk about <laughs> these strikes and things that are going on in Paris. But before we dig into all of that, I just want to think of the best week in Paris. Now, we mm-hmm. don't need to worry about the day by day, but I'd like to hear from both of you. If you had a visitor for, say, a week, what are the four or five really important things that you have to experience, would you say, if you're planning a trip? Veronique. I think it's very stressful for visitors, especially if it's their first or second visit or if they know they won't be back right away. There's mm-hmm. big pressure to see a lot of the big sites. And so people end up running all day long. So my advice would be, that's great. We need to see the big sites, but also try and take your time. Take a deep breath. Have a day, an afternoon where you actually stroll. We call it flâner. F-L-A-N-E-R, flâner, which means to stroll. And that's what Parisians do. Take your time, sit outside a cafe, go see a photo exhibit if you want to have brunch somewhere. Parisians love brunch. You could have a a, a delightful day just strolling and Mm -hmm. adventuring with no real list of sites. Yes, so it would be uh, very important to do, I think. Big cities like Paris, New York, London, they can be exhausting. Take your time. Yeah. So that's very good advice. Arnaud, if if you were thinking of a a handful of... Essential famous sites. Like the, the, the biggies, you mean? Yeah, the biggies. Like what, what you can't miss in one week? Well, of course, you have to go to the Louvre. Uh, I think you have to go to the Orsay Museum. You have to go to the Ile de la Cité, see the Saint-Chapelle, walk by Notre Dame, of course. What's left, unfortunately, for the moment, yeah. it's closed. It's very sad. Uh, you have to go through the Latin Quarter, the Marais District. The Marais, yeah. Uh, Luxembourg Gardens. And that's really, well, of course, so Champs-Élysées, Eiffel Tower. And that's, the, okay, there you go. The that's the what you word. can't miss. Veronique, is there anything else that you would add to uh, Arnaud's list? No, he gave a pretty good list, I think, of the, yeah. the landmarks, the basics. Huh? It sounds a, a bit like a cliché, perhaps. But, ah, they're clichés, but, but it's Paris. Yes, you it know, is. You've got to do it. Now, if you think the museums, I like to think of the Louvre and the Orsay as connecting each other. One is until about 1850 and the other is from 1850 on, right? Mm -hmm. Well, very precisely, actually, the Louvre, it's everything from the very beginning until 1848. Okay. And then the uh, Orsay Museum is all the connections between 1848 and 1914. And then after 1914, you have to go to the Pompidou Center or the Palace of Tokyo, which is uh, modern, uh, contemporary There you go. Okay, so it's three parts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so then, of course, there's many, many more museums, but that's good. Tour guides Veronique Savoy and Arnaud Sauvignon have shown hundreds of Americans the highlights of La Belle France. They're recommending how to have the perfect week in Paris right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Arnaud also offers accommodations and day tours on an eight-person houseboat from his base a little downstream from Paris. And after living in the U.S. for many years, Veronique moved back to France and now is based in the historic town of Tours in the Loire Valley. She posts walking tour videos of France with Vero on YouTube and Facebook and at her French Girl in Seattle website. We provide links with this week's show at ricksteves.com radio. By the way, our interview was recorded a few weeks before the pandemic lockdown started. You talked about the districts. We've got the Ile de la Cité. That's the island in the middle of the Seine. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of ways, that's sort of the, where Paris was born, I think. That's the beginning of it, yes. Back in Roman times. Even before that, before, Even that, before that, you know, from the the Gauls, and of course, on, when you say Gauls, those are the the people that were there when the Romans conquered the, the Gauls, Romans, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we've that got the so. Ile de la Cité, mm-hmm. and then we've got the Marais that you mentioned, and mm-hmm. that's the 
What's the the Marais? What is? It's more like a very elegant district. We have mm-hmm. uh, mansions from the 17th century and and, and 18th century too. Uh, um, lovely little shops, also very Great quaint shops, shops, wonderful restaurants. Yeah, I love the Marais. You have also within you know the Jewish quarter, the Jewish quarter, yes, there's also wonderful the squares quarter too. Uh, mm-hmm. It's just all about history, quaint, narrow streets, and the Marais used to be. It means literally swamp. Swamps, yes. yes. So it was the place where the poor people would go. It and, was a marshy land, you know. And way then back. it was cheap rent, so the artists would go cheap, there. Yeah, yeah. And then it became trendy, and then the uh, it got it, too it expensive for cycles. the artists. It just went through cycles. Be- before, before the war, you would yeah. find mostly uh, carpenters, plumbers, uh, all these kind of small professions. You see, and yeah. and, and today it's th- it's totally gentrified. And great museums, wonderful little museums, plus a couple of major museums. Mm-hmm. And one of the best, my favorite, was always the Musée Carnavalet, yeah, the Carnavalet Museum. Yeah. While, yes. And it's the history of Paris, the, the history of the French Revolution. Mm. It's inside one of those hotels particuliers, former private mansions you can't lose there. And the entrance is free because it's part of the Paris Musée uh, network. Wow. Yes. So if you want history, let's say you like uh, Napoleon or the French Revolution you're curious about or, you know, um, Mansart and roofs and whatever, all of this great French history, you got it right there in the Colonel Valet. Right. Oh, the Carnaval yes, was totally designed for that. It's yeah. fabulous. There's yeah. even a mini, um, there was a model of the guillotine, remember? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. There was a model and of the guillotine. it's in a hotel. What, explain, Véronique, the hotel. Uh, that Particulier? What is that? What is hotel? Because we see the word hotel and we think right. it's a place to rent a bed. So, no, the, no, the word hotel has several meanings. One of them is obviously where we go with our tour members. And another one is Hotel de Ville, which is the city hall, Mm -hmm. hotel of the city. And then the third uh, use is Hotel Particulier. And this is what we call those beautiful private mansions, such as Uh the ones that can be found uh, in Le Marais and other neighborhoods in Paris. What's your favorite mansion to visit in Paris? My favorite mansion, well, Carnavalet would be pretty high on my list, but recently I went to another museum that also sits in Le Marais, and it's called the Cognac G Museum. Oh, it yes. also sits in Wonderful another beautiful... Um, beautiful connection. And it's dedicated to the 18th century, and mm-hmm. uh, it also sits in a... In fact, Le Marais is full of places. What is the like name that. of that second one dedicated to the... Cognac Musée Cognac G. Cognac G. It's the name of the family. Say that it with an American accent, Veronique. Cognac J. Cognac J. There you go. <laughs> and, Come on. Or no, there's there's one there's one hotel that I love, uh, Jacques Mart André. Ah, Jacques Mart André. Yes, that's, describe that's that. Oh, it's a beautiful mansion. Hello, this one is located uh, further west. It's uh, on the boulevard Haussmann. And it's a 19th century uh, mansion, which was belonging to uh, very rich people, uh, Nelly Jacquemart and uh, Edouard André. Uh, everything separated them. One was Protestant, the other one was Catholic. Uh, one had uh, a fortune, the other one had nothing. And actually, through the fortune of the husband and the knowledge of the wife, combined together, they gathered an incredible collection of Italian paintings, French paintings, uh, along with furniture, because it's actually a place where they lived. That's what's special. It's, it's like fantastic. they lived there. It's like you have these incredibly wealthy friends that love art. They had no there children. They had nothing to do with their money and their time except... So it's a home, art. which is totally furbished. Yeah. It's really so fascinating. Jacques Marc Jacques Marc-André. Jacques Arnaud, you say it like André. a Frenchman. Jacques of course, because I'm French. So Jacques-Marc André. <laughs> and Véronique, say it so we can understand it. Jacques-Marc André. Oh, goodness. <laughs> See, if you lived in the States for 20 years, you could speak oh. like a, like one of us Yankees. <laughs> butchering on butchering your French words. Beautiful. I'm so sorry. Pardonnez-moi. Pardon, is, pardon, Arnaud. Pardon, 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 pardon,
This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about the perfect week in Paris. Our guests are Véronique Savoy and Arnaud Savignon. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Stephanie's calling from Boston. Stephanie, thanks for your call. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I've been so eager to tell you about the place that I visited that was one of the most amazing experiences I've had in Paris. And it's called the Atelier des Lumières. Oh, it's yes. Amazing. It's very big right now. I haven't seen it yet. we got two thumbs up here. Tell us about it, Stephanie. Oh, yes. Oh, it's an absolute must. Um, it's in the 11th arrondissement. And it's a huge warehouse-sized space, if you can imagine that. All the walls painted black. And paintings by famous artists like Lenoir, Matisse, Chagall, Cesaro are projected from 150 different projectors on the ceiling, on the walls, mm-hmm. on the floor. And it's wonderful. And not only that, but it's accompanied by music, a playlist I would like to have for myself. Mm. Just beautiful music. It's an amazing visual experience. You can see little kids coming up to the wall and trying to touch it because it seems so real. It's, wow. it's a must-do. Now, just for our listeners, this is L'Atelier des Lumières. Does that mean the Studio of Lights? Is that yes, kind yes. of the yeah. yeah, the workshop of lights. Yes. So, uh, Arno, what is your experience with this? It sounds like a wonderful. I haven't site. been there. I haven't. No, I haven't uh, been this one. Have you been? Yeah, there I, I, yeah. I we saw ha- the Van Gogh show and the one before it, which was Klimt. Um, we, I'm sorry, I missed that. Yeah, yeah and um, yeah, we have the, another one in the we, south of France. The south of France, we take quarry. people to Le Beau and the former it's quarry. A former it's, a, it's an immersive. Uh, oh, it's at Le Beau. I've seen mm-hmm. the one in Le yeah, Beau. It's a similar experience. So the, the French are really good at projecting beautiful images. It's just a we great. are good at many things, you know. Uh, you are, I, I was blown away. <laughs> and so at humble. The, We're very humble. Yes, we are very humble. You know. Yes. And what makes it even easier is that you can go online and make your reservation. Okay, so L'Atelier yeah. des Lumières. That's great, Stephanie. Thanks for your tip. Oh, you're welcome. Enjoy okay. it. <laughs> Take care. Bye. Kitty's calling in from Long Beach in California. Hey, Kitty. Do you have any comments for Veronique or Arnaud? Well, well, for a week in Paris, some people don't know that it is available to take courses at at the Sorbonne, one of the oldest universities in the world, and in English as well as French. You find that, especially in the summertime, is when they offer these Hmm. special courses. And you stay in a a dormitory situation, kind of, in an old hotel opposite the Luxembourg Gardens. Okay. So it's a very nice location uh, for the hours you're not going to classes. Classes are taught every morning by professors from the Sorbonne uh, speaking in English. And, and what, are the, just, what are the subjects that you take? Well, one was Oscar Wilde, for instance, in Paris. Uh, what was his life like? Why did he go to Paris? Another was, uh, what is the future for French tourism? I hadn't thought about it. But uh, they're thinking about it at the Sorbonne. And then another general one about the French Revolution. Uh, So that's the sort of courses. And these are actual professors that teach at the Sorbonne in the regular school year and in the summer. Exactly. They teach English to visitors. Yeah, they're very well versed in the subjects. I, I was an American history teacher, so I know 
the teaching profession quite well. And what a great and, place to call home, the Luxembourg Garden, staying in a dormitory right there, just like they were centuries exactly. ago. You walk, out, you walk out the door and you can go into the gardens, and it's on the uh, Boulevard Michel. Um, Is that San Michel, it, Boulevard San yes, Boulevard Saint Michel. Michel. Oh, okay, and it yes. goes directly down to the Seine River, of course, so you're not too far from a walking distance, really, to go to the Seine. You're on the left bank. All right. Kitty, and, that's, uh, a, that's a great tip, and I think we should all consider that. Hey, go to, go to the university, the Sorbonne of all places, and learn about France from a French professor in English in the summer for a week, and it's affordable. Yes, that was the thing that was important for me. Yeah. I, I'm, I live on a teacher's pension, but uh, I was able to afford the uh, accommodations as well as the course. Good for you. Good for you. Very nice. Thanks, Kitty, for your call and your tip. Happy travels. Take care. Thank you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking about the perfect week in Paris with Véronique Savoy and Arnaud Sauvignon. And Véronique and Arnaud, I think people are thinking a little bit about um, demonstrations and mm. safety and so on. Everybody is, they, they see it in the news and sometimes they get yeah. nervous. And, and Paris the is the capital of freedom, therefore it's a focus of a lot of people. It's, yeah. it's also the capital of protests. Of protests. <laughs> uh, let's just finish off with, with your, your advice. Uh, just what would you say for people who are concerned about that, Arnaud? I would say just don't, don't be concerned. France is by a sense a country where people are always cranky and always complaining about everything and always want more than what they have. So we protest. It's, it's actually religion. I mean, all of my life we've been going through protests. So I would say the best week in Paris is a week with a protest or a week with a strike. Otherwise, it's not Paris. It's not France. It goes with it. There's a, man- so, there's a, there's a word, manifestation or something. Manifestation. Right? manifestation. Well, actually, we say manif. It was even short. It's short, yeah. It's a manif. Oh, there's a manif tomorrow. But people shouldn't be afraid because it's um, a protest. It's always in a very specific area. So it's very safe. You just don't want to hang around, you know. Uh, what would be the point to hang around, you know? So you, can you can choose. You can, yeah, you, you can choose. You can easily be. walk you away, you know. Right. It's very localized. Really, as a visitor, you will not be as impacted as a local. And my advice would be to choose um, a hotel or an Airbnb, an apartment downtown. Uh, so you may be slightly inconvenienced if you want to do a field trip, let's say, if the trains are not running well. But otherwise, you'll be able to walk everywhere. Good point. And, and the metro is there. And if the metro is not working that great, then you have the buses. So as a visitor, you will not be as inconvenienced as the locals, for okay. sure. And it's something that, as Arno said, you live with this. Yeah, and you stay away from the big uh, commotion yeah. if you can, like Arno said, yeah, and you're just good. Veronique Savoy and Arno Savignon, thank you very much for very your welcome. expert you. insight into the City of Light, the wonderful thank city you, of Rick. Paris. Thank you. Some of our listeners have used a link at ricksteves.com slash radio to send us haiku they've written about their impressions of France. Like these. C.E. Siemens writes to us from Oceanside, California, about her trip to the Loire Valley of France. The gilt rapture of Loire sunset chases me back to Paris. Bruce Huang in Rockville, Maryland, is impressed by the strength of the ancient pont du Gard in Provence. Grandest ancient span, masterwork of Roman stones, standing relentless. He adds this poem about the Eiffel Tower. 10,000 tons of daydreams in elegant steel, emblem of Paris. And Teresa Jansen from Port Townsend, Washington, remembers the scene at a town in the Alsace region of France in this haiku. Geraniums flame, timber and stucco walls lean, canals gleam, 
Colmar. Well, Jim Cody of Murfreesboro, Tennessee, sends us a playful poem about the time he attempted to request butter with his meal on the French seaside. Brittany Lunchtime could not say beer. We both laughed. International language. We finish our hour in Paris at the Louvre next on Travel with Rick Steves. Stay with us. Je m'appelle Patrick Noël. Mon voyage avec Christophe Lowe, l'île Maurice, dans l'océan Indien. That was Creole for I'm Patrick Noël, and I will travel with Rick Steves to Mauritius, 500 kilometers from Madagascar in the Indian Ocean. Mon nom c'est Patrick Noël. Mon voyage avec Rick Steves et me descend lors l'île Maurice dans l'océan Indien. Cool. The Louvre in Paris is considered by many to be the world's greatest art museum. It's certainly the world's most famous museum. Art and architecture critic James Gardner has long loved the museum. In fact, his latest book is called The Louvre, The Many Lives of the World's Most Famous Museum. While the museum can intimidate a lot of people who visit, if you know how to visit smartly, it really can be a delight. James joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to recommend how he should plan a visit to the Louvre. James, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Well, first of all, there's a lot more to the Louvre than the art, and I want to talk about the art in a moment, but your book also features the building itself. Well, the world's biggest palace in its day became the world's biggest museum. Give us a quick review of the building's history. After all, you know, the subtitle of your book is The Many Lives of the World's Most Famous Museum. Certainly. Well, in my book, one of the things I was trying to do was to write a history of a spot of land a piece of earth that happens now to contain the Louvre. So although I don't dwell too much on this, it goes back thousands of years to the Neolithic period. And uh, when they were creating the Grand Louvre that we see today back in the 1980s, they discovered skeletons from 5,000 years ago. They discovered the remains of livestock that were bred 2,000 years ago and vineyards from 15 centuries ago. So there had been human inhabitation sparsely for thousands of years here. But it emerges into history as something like what we think of today around 1200 AD when the French king uh, Philippe Auguste decided to build this great wall around the city of Paris. Which, by the way, you can see these medieval walls in the street plan today. They tore down the walls, but you got these semicircular streets going out from the Seine River. Exactly, exactly. And uh, actually, there are a few remains of the wall, if you know where to go, but though not many. But when we think of the Louvre today, when we think of Paris today, the Louvre is precisely in the center of the city of Paris. Mm-hmm. But that was not always the case. Originally, Paris was entirely to the east of the Louvre. Hmm. That would be the island in the Latin Quarter? Yeah, the the uh, Ile de la Cité, the Ile Saint-Louis, the Latin Quarter, the Marais, mm-hmm. all of that. That was Paris. Mm-hmm. And then at its western flank, you, you had it surrounded by this wall. Mm-hmm. And after the wall was built, they decided that the British, the Normans, the invaders, could slip through. And so to avoid that, they built this fortification for a garrison outside the city walls. Mm -hmm. 
and they called it for reasons that are obscure to this day, the Louvre. And it was this, this rather ugly, unimpressive fortification. James, in sort of a simplistic terms, how did the Louvre go from a royal palace to a public museum? Well, when Louis XIV left Paris for Versailles, they were looking for some function for the museum. And as the art world in Paris became ever more important, they decided to transform it into a museum. But they weren't able to do that until after the revolution had taken place in 1793. Because it seems logical if you've got um, the biggest palace in the world and you've gotten rid of the king and you've inherited the greatest collection of art in the world, hang that art in the palace and open it up to the public. Is, is that sort of essentially what happened? Yes, it is. And actually one of the incentives to change it into museum was that already before the revolution, some of the best art created in France, some of the best art that you can now see in the Louvre was created in the Louvre itself because uh, they, they had opened up a lot of the Louvre once the king left to artists for their studios. Oh, I love it. Yeah. You had this hive of activity. You had painters in what's now the, the colonnade. You had some of the best sculptors in 18th century France. They were in a tiny corner of the uh, northern part of the Cour Carré. And if you, if you go to, uh, you know, the Cour Marly, where you have all these beautiful sculptures, those were created just a few feet away in uh, the Cour Carré. This is the heart of the art world in Paris at a time when Paris was the center of the art world. And we enjoy that to this day. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with James Gardner, and his book is called The Louvre, The Many Lives of the World's Most Famous Museum. We have links to his work with this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. James, when I think about Paris, and it's got so much great art, it seems to me that there's a grand plan for the entire sweep of history, and it's not all just thrown into the Louvre. The Louvre takes you up to about the middle of the 1800s, and then in our generation, the um, different museums put their post-1850 art into the Orsay Gallery, and then we have the Pompidou for today's art. Do you see it that way, that there's sort of a grand plan to show off the entire sweep of art history in Paris? Yes, I think that's right. Originally, the Louvre had been conceived as a universal museum which would contain everything the way the Metropolitan Museum in New York does. But then uh, starting around 1900, well, really in the 1980s, with the opening of the Musée d'Orsay, it was decided that all art after around uh, 1850, that's to say the Impressionists and Second Empire art, would go to the Musée d'Orsay. And then ethnological art, which had originally been in the Louvre, now went in the 19, I think, 1990s or early 2000s to the Musée du Quai Branly, Jacques Chirac. Uh, but, but the idea is that you have sort of these satellite museums orbiting the Louvre, and if you take them all together, you have the entirety of human art history. James, the, the title of your book is The Most 
famous museum in the world, and I think that's probably indisputable. But what about the greatest art museum? I've always wondered about that because think of the great art museums we can visit just in Europe. We've got the Uffizi, the Vatican, the Prado, the National Gallery in London, Vienna's Kunsthistorische Museum, the Rijksmuseum, and the, um, the Hermitage in St. Petersburg. Do any of these museums rival, in your mind, the paintings in the Louvre? Well, first of all, do they rival the paintings in the Louvre? Yes, I think so. I mean, they're all such great collections that it's it's really difficult to choose. And it's in the nature of their greatness and of the Louvre's greatness that when you're there, you think this is the greatest museum in the world. Mm-hmm. So it's it's hard to choose. On the other hand, you should say that the Louvre has so much else that a lot of those museums don't have, like one of the greatest collections of... Egyptian art anywhere in the world. Yeah. And Greek and Roman statuary. Yeah, yeah, right, right, and, and so much else. And one thing each of these museums have in common is a great and powerful royal family. And uh, I guess that helps when you're assembling art uh, through the centuries. Certainly, and it, one should also say that uh, each of them tends to emerge from a context of great artistic creativity, if you go to the Rijksmuseum, you know, uh, Holland was one of the great centers of art in uh, the 17th century, and so many of their greatest masterpieces have gone from the various houses around the museum into the museum. Something similar happens in the Uffizi in Florence and, and the Prado in Well, when you, when you go to the Prado in Madrid, you find all these amazing um, paintings from the Netherlands— and then you realize, oh, That's yeah, right. there was a time when the Netherlands were called the Spanish Netherlands, who was the king. Exactly. Well, he was down in Madrid, and he gets all the great art to this day. That's right. It's an amesing collection. The, you know, the, the Prado... That's a collection that I didn't know as well as some other collections, like those of England and France, the Louvre. But when I was there recently, I, I had this powerful sense that this is the greatest collection I've ever been in. And I don't know if that's factually the case, but it's in the nature of a great collection that it conjures you into feeling that way. Well, Charles V was the most powerful man in Europe, ruling, I think, from Madrid. And, his... and he had excellent taste, <laughs> had uh, as, taste. Did his, as did his son, Philip II. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with James Gardner. He's an art critic and an art historian from New York, and he's written a book called The Louvre, The Many Lives of the World's Most Famous Museum. James. When we go to the Louvre, we find that everybody is going to the same handful of rooms or galleries, and this vast museum is empty, relatively empty elsewhere. I've noticed that Western tourists tend to go to the Denon Wing with all of the artists that we know, but when you go to, what is it, the the Richelieu Wing with the Near Eastern Antiquities, you find a lot of people from uh, the Middle East there and travelers coming in from Saudi Arabia or from Pakistan or, or from uh, Turkey. They'll be more likely to check out the Mesopotamian art that most of us Western travelers underrate. What's your take on appreciating dimensions of the museum that most of us American tourists overlook? Well, it's such a vast collection that you obviously have to pace yourself and I would say that the best way to see the museum initially is simply to float through it and take in whatever comes your way. 
and enjoy it, you shouldn't try to concentrate too much on individual objects. In fact, you're you giving probably... us, in your book, you give us freedom to do that. It's a beautiful thing. I love your term, uh, what do you call it, filter feeding. Like a filter big, feeding, Like a big yeah. whale floating down the gallery yes. and just kind of uh, taking it in like a whale would. Exactly. That's, uh, that's the most comfortable way to do it. You won't knock yourself out. You won't end up hating the art, you know, because you're tired or you're, you're doing it against your will. You'll enjoy it and you'll see the whole museum. Because the thing, one of the things I try to emphasize in my book is that the museum itself, the structure, is as fascinating an object as exhilarating a masterpiece as anything in the museum, anything hanging on the walls. But because of the way in which people conceive museums, they're just sort of the frame that, that you just have to pass through in order to get to, uh, to the art. But, you know, there are stairways that are some of the masterpieces of European architecture. Mm. Most people, they're not conditioned to think of stairways as anything other than this potentially opulent means of ascending oh, from one yeah. level to another. Are you thinking of standing at the base of the stairway leading up to the winged victory of Samothrace? That's one. That's the Escalier de Rue. I love that. I mean, and to sit yeah. for a moment and just appreciate the ensemble of architecture and history and, and statuary, it's just so exciting, I think. Yeah, and you have you have amazingly beautiful stairways and perhaps there are no more beautiful stairways in France than in the Louvre, but people don't pay attention to that. And what you might remember, James, uh, for our travelers, you know, before that, it was a tight spiral staircase. I mean, you may be going to the Saint-Chapelle church before your visit to the Louvre, and to get into that greatest Gothic interior, just that wonderful festival of medieval stained glass, you walk up this tight, dark spiral staircase, and then you enter... But now the mark of a great modern palace by a very important person would be not to have a spiral staircase, but to have that grand staircase. Exactly. Hmm. Exactly. You have them in Versailles, you have them in the Louvre, and they're, they're masterpieces. And so in general, you should pay attention not only to the art on the walls, mm -hmm. but to your surroundings, because the Louvre is one of the great architectural and cultural masterpieces in Paris in itself, not just for what it contains. You know, there's one thing I'd, I'd like to talk to you about before our, our time is up. In this day and age, when we have this Instagram culture and everybody's got to get a photograph of themselves with the iconic Mona Lisa, we have all over Europe these gotta-see bucket list art masterpieces causing amazing crowds, whereas the rest of the collection, which is so important, kind of just gets trampled by as everybody stampedes towards the famous piece of art, in Milano at the Forteza, there's a Michelangelo Pieta, the Pieta Rondonini, I believe it's called, and they've actually moved it out of the gallery and put it in its own building. So the tourists that are just there to see Michelangelo's Pieta can do that and not muck up the whole museum experience for other people. Is there any talk of considering moving the Mona Lisa to a, a freestanding building nearby and letting the Louvre be the Louvre without that, you know, superstar? Well, there's talk from people like me, but I'm not sure that anyone's listening to me. Uh, it would be it would be a good idea. I don't foresee that happening. Mm -hmm. But but if it were to happen, you'd suddenly see far fewer crowds in the Louvre itself, which is really strange because in the place where the the Mona Lisa is now hanging, 
you have around 40 other paintings, most of them acquired by Louis XIV. And these are some of the greatest masterpieces in Western art, right? If you had only one of them there, it would be worth an entire voyage to go see it by Titian, by Veronese. And they're totally eclipsed by the Louvre in the middle and all the people with their selfie sticks raised above the crowd. It's true. Almost no one pays any attention to the other art on the wall. James Gardner is a respected art and architecture critic from New York. He explores the Louvre inside and out in his book called The Louvre, The Many Lives of the World's Most Famous Museum. You can listen to his previous visit with us on Travel with Rick Steves and find links to his work at ricksteves.com slash radio. James, this is such a fascinating topic. A lot of times when I go to a great museum, I imagine the joy and the challenge, the creative challenge of being the curator of that museum and how I might, you know, organize it. If you were the curator of the Louvre, how would you change the museum? Hmm, that's a good question. Well, first of all, we, we might start by moving the Mona Lisa I would try to restore some of the original decor of some of the most beautiful rooms that have been somewhat tarnished by tasteless post-World War II modernist design. I would get rid of some of the furniture that's from the 1950s and put more period furniture there. Uh, in terms of the, the art that's there, it, it seems as though they're, they're doing a good job. You see, there's this thing called the the Long Gallery, the Grand Gallery, which is one of the longest structures in the world. Um, part of that has been cut short and given to the École du Louvre, which is a university teaching academy. Mm -hmm. I would reclaim that for the museum and perhaps... It's a quarter uh, mile long. You want it to be really exhausting. I, I've got a little game I play, which is my heel-toe speed walking tour of the Grand Gallery, and it's really exercise. You get your laps. You can go a quarter of a mile in that thing, slaloming through all of the tourists, doing your, what do you call it, your filter feeding of all that great art. That's right. Well, well you know, uh, most people, when they're inside a structure, they don't think they're walking. But in fact, if you go spend an afternoon in the Louvre, you're probably walking two or three miles. Mm. So you're getting very good exercise. And you're soaking up all that great art. James Gardner, thanks so much exactly. for joining us. Uh, the book is uh, The Louvre, The Many Lives of the World's Most Famous Museum. James, I'd love to go to the Louvre with you someday in the future. Best wishes. We shall do so. Right. Thank you for having me. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Casmara Hall, and Donna Bardsley at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Special thanks to the Radio Foundation in New York City for their help this week. Gretchen Strauch read our listener travel haiku. Send us your own original haiku describing your travel impressions. Details are at ricksteves.com radio. Hey, I'm Rick Steves, and I love art. And in my new book, Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, I share my favorites with gorgeous photos and vivid descriptions. It's all in Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, Art for the Traveler. It's available now at ricksteves.com.